Welcome to Challenging Paradigm X. Do you know what the real story of a past is? Is insensitivity, cruelty and violence part of the human nature? And what is the key to true change for humanity? Is GDP the right measure for economic value? And is domination the best way of running the economy, politics and society? As I always say, it is in the darkest hour that light prevails. And this is why I always ask my guests about their turning points in life and why they do what they do. Today I have a very special guest and I feel very honored that she took the time to do an interview with me. Rianne Eisler experienced as a seven-year-old the Kristallnacht, one of the darkest hours in the 20th century. And the events of that night would lead her to conduct multidisciplinary research to find out whether cruelty, destructiveness and violence are inevitable, whether they are our human nature. In the book, The Great Peacemakers, she is, amongst other people, mentioned in the same breath as Mahatma Gandhi, Jane Goldel, Martin Luther King, the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa and more. In macro history, she is considered to be one of the 20 most important macro thinkers. Amongst them are Adam Smith, Karl Marx, Max Weber and more. Rianne Eisler is a systems scientist, futurist, attorney and macro historian. Her work had a transformative impact on many humans worldwide. She is the president of the Center of Partnership Systems, editor-in-chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies at the University of Minnesota, and author of multiple best-selling books including The Chalice and the Blade, Sacred Pleasure, Tomorrow's Children, The Power of Partnership, and The Real Wealth of Nations. That book was being hailed by Nobel Peace Laureate Archbishop Desmond Tutu as a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. Rianne keynotes conferences internationally, consults governments on the partnership model, pioneered the expansion of human rights to include women and children, received many awards for her work for human rights, peace, the environment, and the foundations for a sustainable and better future. If you're interested, find out more about this truly inspiring woman. Stay tuned. Hello, here is Xerxes, and I'm here today with Rianne Eisler. Uh, Rianne, it's a great honor for me to have you as my guest. Uh, please introduce yourself. Thank you. Well, I am a writer of uh, quite a few books. In fact, uh, one of my books just came out recently in a new German edition. In English, it was The Real Wealth of Nations. And all my recent books, and recent over the last 30 years, starting with The Chalice and the Blade, which is also available in German, Kettchenschwert are really based on my multidisciplinary cross-cultural historical research that has attracted quite a bit of attention because it is what we might call whole systems analysis. That is, unlike most studies of society, of the economy, it does not marginalize or just ignore the majority of humanity, women and children. And once you take 
this into account, you are able to see connections that are otherwise invisible. That yes, the status of women, the status of children, these are not just, quote, women's issues or just children's issues, but they're key social issues. And my most recent book, Nurturing Our Humanity, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2019, really shows uh, how the evidence from neuroscience, which shows that nothing less than our brains develop in interaction with our environments, which for humans are mainly cultural, of course, especially in the first five or so years of our lives, really back up the new categories that I've introduced, the partnership system and the domination system, or rather the partnership domination social scale which transcends conventional right-left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, etc. So that's me. I am very passionately committed to this work because what it shows is not only that a better way of living and making a living is possible, but that it's actually deeply rooted in the real story of uh, our past. So could you elaborate on that? What do you mean by the real story of our past? That takes me back to Kelch und Schwert and to other books, Talos and the Blade, of course, in English, which was the first book reporting findings from this research. And what we today know is that we have been told a false story. The caveman cartoon, right? You know, in one hand, he's got a club you know, a weapon, and on the other hand, he's dragging a woman by the hair. And we think nothing of showing this to children before their brains, much less their critical faculties are formed. So what does it say? It says male dominance, violence, inequality. That's just human nature, right? It's always been that way. By definition, it always will be that way. Well, number one, we today know from neuroscience, by the way, that the pleasure centers in our brains light up more, light up more when we share and care than when we win and dominate. But we also, the evidence, and it is an enormous amount of evidence from archaeology, from anthropology, from linguistics, from even DNA studies, show that literally thousands and thousands of years, human culture was more generally equitable, more peaceful. War, we now know, despite what we're told, is only between five and 10,000 years old. That's a drop in the evolutionary bucket. And yes, it was more gender balanced. In other words, it oriented more to the partnership rather than the domination side. And my books and articles and just speaking, teaching has focused on this. And uh, it is very important that we know the real story about human nature and the real story about our past, because otherwise we think we're stuck, don't we? That's the 
I've introduced four cornerstones that we must shift from domination to partnership. And one of them is, of course, stories, narratives, but also language, because our language has us trapped. Think of, for example, the two only two categories in the English and, and I think most in the European languages for relations between women and men are matriarchy and patriarchy. And what's the choice? Either father's rule or mother's rule. There is no partnership alternative. And as for right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, for one thing, there have been oppressive, repressive, uh, violent regimes in every one of these categories, whether it was uh, Hitler, uh, Nazis, or whether it was Khomeini in Iran, which you are familiar with, or ISIS, religious, secular, leftist, you know, Stalin in the former Soviet Union. It doesn't really matter. But for another, if you really think about it, and this fragments our consciousness, every one of our conventional categories, like conventional studies, of human society either marginalize or ignore women and children, the majority of humanity. So we can't see the connections and we can't see that, yes, the partnership configuration is very different from the domination configuration and that it's not a coincidence that whether it was for Khomeini in Iran, and I mentioned Khomeini because you're Persian, you're Iranian, or Hitler in Germany, or Stalin in the former Soviet Union, or the Taliban, or ISIS, very different. But for all of them, a top priority is always either imposing or maintaining an authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, and highly punitive family. This is not a coincidence. So we have to consider family and the new multidisciplinary work that is beginning slowly to emerge in our very siloed universities, you know, shows this. Okay. So, and is there any hypothesis why it developed like that over the last couple of thousands of years? Because also there were, were other systems parallel and before. The old were not matriarchies. They were not matriarchies. They were more partnership oriented. See how the language keeps us trapped that if women had some power, it was a matriarchy. No, it was more partnership oriented. So when people say that there is no evidence of matriarchy, they're right. I mean, men also had, their, their position was nothing like the position of women uh, later became as subordinate, as helpers, as basically male property. So I really need to correct that. My work, uh, to answer your questions, Erickson, draws heavily from new approaches, new theories about living systems and societies, of course, are complex living systems, about how complex living systems maintain themselves and how they can change, transformative change, uh, from chaos theory, from nonlinear dynamics, from uh, 
self-organizing theory. And I've introduced cultural transformation theory, which incorporates some of these same thinking. And what it shows, to answer your question, how did how do we get to this place that is taking us really to an evolutionary dead end, unless we shift with uh, climate change and with weapons like nuclear and biological warfare, etc. It was during a period of great uh, systems disequilibrium, uh, both enormous climate changes, armed invasions, uh, huge technological changes. But just because it happened that we shifted five to 10,000 years ago, we began in different places at, you know, at, at different speeds to shift towards the domination side doesn't mean that it had to happen. I mean, I am not either an environmental determinist or a cultural determinist. I, I think that we have to leave that behind. And my approach is also not linear. You know, we've been taught that the story of human culture is a straight line, right, from, quote, barbarism to, quote, civilization. Well, you look at some of the civilizations, and they're pretty grim, aren't they? I mean, whether it was a Chinese emperor or a Arab sheik or a Hindu pasha during domination times, or Nazi Germany or Khomeini's Iran, it's nonlinear. It's a nonlinear theory, and it is really supported by evidence rather than by just a worldview. And it, it introduces a new way of thinking about our past, our present, and most importantly, the possibilities for our future. So I'm really interested, how, how did you get into this work and why do you do what you do? Or what you did all over the last uh, couple of decades? Well, it's more than a couple of decades. I've been working on this for, well, I was born as where you now live in Vienna. And when I was very small, my parents and I, well, a gang of Nazis came into our home on crystal night and dragged my father away. So I really think that my work is very deeply rooted in that early experience, but also, of course, I think of my life really like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together because there are so many different elements. My background as a, my first job was with an offshoot of the RAND Corporation, the Systems Development Corporation, where way back when nobody was talking about systems analysis, I learned about it. Now it's become a popular term. I'm also an attorney. And pattern recognition is really part of being a lawyer because people don't come to you and say, apply section 1222 of the civil code to my case. They say, oh, this and this happened. And then it's up to the attorney, isn't it? To figure it out, what is the applicable law, etc. But to go, go back to the roots, I witnessed cruelty, destructiveness, insensitivity, but I also witnessed something else that I today call spiritual courage. And it was my mother who displayed that courage. The courage, I call it spiritual courage because it's the courage not to slay the dragon, like we're taught this is courage, but the courage to stand up 
against injustice out of love. And she recognized one of the young Nazis as a former errand boy from the family business, and she got furious. How dare you do this to this man who has been so kind to you? I want him back. Now, she could have been killed. Many Jewish people were killed on Kristallnacht, so-called because of all the glass shattered in Jewish homes, in synagogues, in businesses. But by a miracle, she wasn't. By a miracle, well, some money passed hands. She obtained my father's release. By a miracle, we escaped. And that led me to, to the question that animates my research. You know, is all this cruelty, insensitivity, destructiveness inevitable? You know, as we're told, you know, as we talked about, you know, human nature, right? Or are there alternatives? And if so, what are they? And to answer that question, I immediately could see the old social categories don't answer it because none of, I mean, there have been terrible regimes in every right, left, religious, secular, eastern, western, northern, southern. And I also by then realized something else, that it was looking at society through a very distorted and narrow lens that really does not take into account by any means the whole of society, the majority of society, women and children. And therefore, what we know today from neuroscience to really fast forward to nurturing our humanity uh, really is so important because what does it tell us? It tells us that nothing less than how our brains develop and with this how we feel, how we think, how we act, how we vote. Why, after the Arab Spring, did people vote for a repressive regime? You have to ask yourself that question. Well, because it felt more familiar. You have to take the whole, including the family, into account. Now, fortunately, not everyone raised in domination families grows up that way. But we also know from neuroscience something very, very interesting, and this is all in nurturing our humanity, that the parts of our brain that help us really be resilient and see change and go with change are less developed in the brains of people who consider themselves very conservative, in my language, domination-oriented. They eventually get the change, but it takes them a long time. So what do you get? You get climate change denial. You get election result denial. It's follow the leader, follow the authority figure. You get COVID-19 denial. This makes no sense, does it? I mean, but it does if you look at the whole picture and understand that this really something that we have to address. So the four cornerstones I've introduced start with childhood, go on to gender, and then go on to economics. But beyond capitalism and socialism, we need both markets, both businesses, and government policies. I mean, COVID-19 showed this writ large, didn't it? But a caring economics of partnerism. And I can talk more about that. And of course, narratives and new language. Because as Einstein said, we cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. And the language keeps us trapped, doesn't it? 
Definitely, it does. Definitely, it does. I personally think that language is very much connected to the stories we tell ourselves and uh, the paradigms that that lead us, basically. I would be really interested to know within those four pillars that you talk about, where do you see culture and how would you define culture? Well, all four of these pillars are aspects of culture. But if you notice, they're not the aspects that have been emphasized in most theories of social change. I mean, if you look at modern history through the new lens of the partnership domination scale, you begin to see something that otherwise would seem obvious, that every single modern progressive social movement has challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination. Whether it was in the 1700s, the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule their, quote, subjects, or the 18th and 19th century feminist movement challenging again the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children in the, quote, castles of their homes, whether it was the first the abolitionist and then the, the civil rights and the anti-colonial movements challenging again another so-called divinely, everything is divinely ordained, right? I mean, uh, write a, quote, superior race to rule over inferior ones, all the way to the environmental movement, challenging our once idealized domin dominion, dom domination, conquest of nature. But if you look at these movements, you see that they have focused primarily on dismantling the top of the domination pyramid, politics and economics as conventionally defined, because I define them differently, and left in place the foundations on which domination systems have kept rebuilding themselves in regression after regression, whether it was the Nazis, whether it was Stalin, whether it was Khomeini, whether it's the Taliban, ISIS, you have to understand that for these domination regimes, because they all have the same configuration, authoritarian family and tribal state, rigid ranking of men and quote masculinity as defined or misdefined in domination systems over the, the soft, the so-called feminine caring, caregiving, nonviolence, and a high degree of built-in abuse and violence, because how else are you going to maintain these rankings of man over woman, race over race, religion over religion? Did you see what I'm saying? I mean, there is some violence. People lose it in partnership system, but it doesn't have to be built into the system. And of course, very different stories and language. And so if we start looking at society from that perspective, then we see that we really have to pay much, much more attention to these foundations, because whether, I mean, what the Shador became the flag, right, of Khomeini's Islamic dictatorship. This is not coincidental, because 
I, I, I really want to talk about gender for a moment because we're so drilled into us, especially liberal people, people who consider themselves liberal, that these are just women's issues or children's issues. Because why? Because in our universities, there's hardly anything. I, I woke up one day and I realized, my God, in all my years of so-called higher education, there had been hardly anything by, about, or for people like me, women. And that was a big aha. It was really, whoa, something is wrong. So we, we, we really have to understand that this model that is of, of our species, you know, we're different, beginning with the difference in form between the female and the male, is a template for what I call in-group versus out-group thinking. Inferior, superior, inferior, dominate, dominated, being served, serving. It's a template. So it's not coincidental that whether it's Shia against Sunni or Sunni against Shia in the Middle East, or whether it's racism or anti-Semitism in the West, it doesn't really matter. It comes from this view that difference means you either, there are only two alternatives, you either dominate or you're dominated. Just like with matriarchy and patriarchy, there is no partnership alternative. In reality, not only is there a partnership alternative, but we're finding that it is much more effective, including economically effective. And this does require, people tell me they read my work and it's full of aha moments because things that seemed random and disconnected suddenly make sense. But gender, and we have inherited Xerxes, and I think this is really important, a gendered system of values that goes along with this male superior, female inferior model of our species, where anything stereotypically considered soft, feminine, caring, caregiving, nonviolence is devalued. It's, you know, how, how, what is the socialization of, quote, real men not being like a woman in domination systems? It's very negative, really, but that's how it has been. But it deprives both men and women of their full humanity. And the good news, of course, is how many men are today, for example, diapering babies, feeding babies, are doing the, quote, women's work, which would be, they would be despised and are despised in domination systems. And how many women are trying to be assertive in, in men that's highly valued, aggressiveness. In women, it's, you must not assert yourself. But women are taking on more leadership positions, etc. So we're seeing movement towards partnership, but it hasn't been understood to be key to the change. And that really changing our definitions, humanity of being human, of masculinity and femininity is a key to change. And my work shows that. And the, as I said, the good news is that, well, we're seeing changes, but not fast enough, not fast enough. And people need a new worldview. 
that connects the dots. Okay. And do you have an idea or a hypothesis of how this can be accelerated? Well, I think that we have technologies of communication today that are, in a sense, it's a double-edged sword, you know. On the one hand, we, we're seeing the shortening of our attention spans, which is very bad, very, very bad, because we have the capacity to make connections, to have to see patterns, but it's very hard to do it if you're jumping from one thing to another. But on the other hand, we do have technologies of communication. I, I believe that, strangely enough, because the domination system is taking us to an evolutionary dead end, you know, an ethos of domination and high technology are a lethal mix. That, in a strange way, is a sign of hope. I also see hope in COVID. That may sound strange, but it was a way of stepping back and people are beginning to talk about what I talk about. Let's not go back to the old normal, where even in the wealthy United States, one quarter of all children, one quarter of all children lived in poverty. I mean, we don't want to go back to that normal. We, people are beginning to talk about creating a new and better normal. But, you know, it takes, and, and of course, you have 70 million people who voted for Trump who are living in a complete virtual alternative universe. Follow the leader, you know, if the authority figure, whether it's a pastor or whether it's Trump tells them something, it has to be so. It, it is really fascinating, isn't it? So we see the struggle for our future is not between right and left and religious and secular and Eastern and Western and Northern and Southern, it's between these two configurations. And we have to shift these foundations of childhood. I mean, we see trends towards what I call partnership parenting, authoritative, but not authoritarian, and certainly non-violent. I mean, you know, to hit a child, think about that for a moment, to hit this helpless human being, that's wrong. But it's also preparation for learning that it's very dangerous to question authority, no matter how crazy, no matter how unjust. It works. It works. So we have now about 50 nations pioneered by Sweden. Some of the Northern European nations have been moving to the partnership side. More gender balance, more women in government, more caring policies, universal health care, child care, very generous paid parental leave. These are huge. These are partnership policies. These are caring economics policies. But Sweden also pioneered a law that said that it's against the law to use physical discipline against children. And they launched a massive educational campaign. So you ask me, what do we need? We need a massive educational campaign to show people that there is a partnership alternative, to show that childhood and gender are central to the shift to survive and thrive. And that in our post-industrial age, we need new measures of economic health. We're developing such a measure showing that we know from neuroscience 
today that if we are to have that high quality human capital that economists keep talking about, right? Flexible, creative, resilient people who can work in teams rather than just giving or taking orders. It starts in childhood, in childhood. So we have to turn reality right side up. And it can be done if enough consciousness changes. And that is what this work is about because action, policy, I mean, I introduced the term human infrastructure about in 2007 already. And now President Biden is using it. I wrote a book, The Real Wealth of Nations. The subtitle is Creating a Caring Economics. It got co-opted to mean only the care economy rather than an economy that has as its goal caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. That is what we need, of course. But we are moving. But there's also 70 million people who are in some kind of crazy domination-oriented reality. So we have a lot of work to do. But it can be done, and change does happen. Change does happen. Change has happened, not only from partnership to domination, but during the disequilibrium, the dislocations of first the Industrial Revolution and now the shift to the post-industrial knowledge service age, we're seeing a lot of change. So it can happen. Definitely, I'm sure. I've seen that you've talked a lot about the GDP, for example, that it's the wrong measure. It's absolutely uh, the wrong measure. And uh, could you elaborate a bit on the, this? Well, yes. Well, of course, <laughs> we uh, GDP is the result of what I call domination economics. And it isn't just capitalism. Uh, it's also socialism, really. Because both capitalists, both Marx and Smith, like is still taught in economic schools today, well, in, in their time, caring for people was to be performed for free, by a woman in a male-controlled household. So much so that even as late as when Marx wrote in the 1900s, many of the laws still said that a woman, a wife, because most women married, could not sue herself for injuries inflicted on her. Only her husband could for loss of her service. So that's what we've inherited. So GDP, of course, not only includes as, quote, productive work, because both Marx and Smith relegated care work to reproductive rather than productive. All right. So what does GDP include as productive? Activities that actually harm and take life. I mean, selling cigarettes, selling unhealthy fast foods, and the resulting medical costs and resulting funeral costs, they all make GDP go up, don't they? A, a tree is not part of GDP, even though we depend on trees to breathe, unless it's dead, unless it's chopped down. But not only does GDP include as, quote, productive negatives, it fails to include as productive the activities in the non-market economy in the natural economy, 
in the volunteer community economy and in the household economy, because the system was simply set up to exploit those three. I mean, it was domination economics. We at the Center for Partnership Systems are developing, well, we, de we launched in 2014 what we called social wealth economic indicators, metrics that show the economic value, economic value of investing, the return on investment, if you will, from investing in caring for people starting in childhood and investing in caring for our natural life support systems. And we now have a team of uh, economists working because there are 24 of these indicators, and that's a lot of indicators, to condense and upgrade them into what we called a social wealth index. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have the first prototype of this index. And it is different from other so-called GDP alternatives, which don't focus on the so-called women's work, you know, gender again, right, of caring, but also because it not only looks at where we are, the snapshot of quality of life as it is today, but it also looks at not only outputs, but inputs. What investments are needed for a better quality of life. So for example, when we've launched the social wealth economic indicators, and you can find out more about them at centerforpartnership.org. The United States, for example, invests less than half the OECD average in family support. And not coincidentally, the United States has the highest infant mortality, the highest maternal mortality and the highest poverty, child poverty rates of any developed nation. I mean, we have to connect the dots, don't we? And again, family, family, women, children. Okay, thank you for your elaboration. I find, I find it also very interesting from the perspective that before I got to know your work, I, I always felt like that uh, the systems that we are running now basically in my personal opinion have failed that they are contributing um like if you would lo look at life like a computer game and how civilization develop uh, over the centuries and now we are like in the final phase of humanity possibly even humanity dying then uh, the question is why is it dying And uh, an answer would be possibly that profit maximization doesn't work. And one of the s solutions that I was thinking of is, well, I mean, maybe humanity needs to find out we cannot make it through the challenges that we're facing without uh, collaboration. Yes. And then I found your work, and basically that's what you're talking about. You're talking about partnership, starting with partnership from the gender perspective. But really, it also goes beyond that. It's also beyond the family and beyond uh, the city and the country and nations. It's really the collaboration. We see it also now during the COVID pandemic, basically, that we cannot handle this pandemic if we look at this, I would say it from this perspective now, transnational virus that is everywhere. We cannot uh, handle it as nations. And I think your work goes very much into this direction, but telling us really where to start off. 
But it, it, and, it, and, and we have to remember that people do collaborate in domination systems, cartels collaborate, gangs collaborate, invading armies collaborate. We're talking about the governing values, and that takes us back to the gendered system of values. In other words, yes, uh, partnership systems are based on mutual respect, mutual accountability, mutual benefit, but there are hierarchies too what I call hierarchies of actualization, you know, empowering rather than disempowering, because we all are, are, and and we read about, it's a trend in that direction, even in the management literature, but it is not placed in context. We need to understand that this is part of the shift from domination to partnership, and that you can't just, I spoke to the United Nations on a session organized by the country of Bolivia on harmony with nature. And I made the point, you cannot tack on harmony with nature to a fundamentally imbalanced system. I mean, you really need whole systems change. And that's happening in bits and pieces. But unfortunately, as yet, as yet, this new worldview is not mainstream, and we have to make partnership mainstream, partnerism mainstream, because then people feel empowered. They are, they stop fighting each other for the scraps, because that's how the domination system maintains itself. And really, we can move, but we have to pay attention to these four cornerstones of childhood, and, and there are trends in that direction. I mean, even the American Psychological Association last year or the year before finally said spanking is not only ineffective as a means of discipline, but it is harmful, not only physically, but psychologically. But it, it is all part of the movement from domination to partnership. And uh, so I do these interviews to sort of get these ideas out because people aren't reading books as much. And I wish they would because my books are very accessible. as They have tremendous amounts of evidence, but they're written. Well, I mean, Chalice is just a fascinating story, really. And, I, and certainly my book on economics is getting a lot of attention uh, now because it's time. The times have finally caught up or are beginning to catch up to the need for a new way of thinking and therefore new policies and a new, better way of living and avoiding disaster, frankly. Yes. And you're part of the partnership movement. I can see that, Xerxes. Thank you. So... You've talked a lot about paradigms now, basically. I mean, we've talked now all, all the way through about uh, paradigms. Is there anything you would like to add to that when it comes to paradigms that really need to be challenged? Well, we, we have challenged paradigms. I mean, I sometimes say it as a joke that when I get really depressed, I think of the European Middle Ages. Why? because they looked a lot like the Taliban, you know, with the Inquisition and the Crusades and the witch burnings. Women had no rights, children, nobody had human rights. I mean, you would say human rights and people would think you're crazy, right? I mean, Augustine, St. Augustine said it. He said, for anyone 
to question their status in life is like for a nose to want to be an eye. Can you imagine? And so we have changed, but we have had regression after regression. And we can only avoid those by really paying attention to these four cornerstones. This is very practical. This is not theory. This is reality backed up by neuroscience. So I have confidence that we humans are very creative, very creative. Look, everything around us is a human creation. And I don't just mean the furniture and the houses. I mean our culture, our economic system. They're all human creations. We can recreate them. And that's what I'm counting on. And I want to be part of helping to guide that shift from domination to partnership to a world not perfect, but not a utopia, but what I call a pragmatopia, practical place. I, I really like how you always emphasize that uh, everything is a human creation. And for example, when it comes to the economy, I mean, as you said, everything is human creation, including the economy. And it often seems like people exclude the economy from being a human creation. It is, in my opinion, I, I guess you share the same opinion. It is our choice how we go forth with the economy. It, it, it seems to be like a dogma that this economic system, how it works now, just needs to be optimized, but not essentially changed. It needs to be essentially changed. And I'll tell you, I, I, I wonder how people can think that we can continue with a an economy that depends on overconsumption, depends on overconsumption when it's taking us to a disaster, of course it needs to change. But see, I think that we have to change the definition of what is and is not productive work. I mean, we always have to go to basics. And that takes us again back to the gender system of values, right? And to getting economic schools to stop dividing into productive and reproductive, even feminist economists are taught you know, and it's crazy. I mean, the production of human beings that are creative, that are resilient, that can work in teams, that is the most productive work. And we can do this all through life. I mean, we're amazing creatures. So it's a choice. It's a choice. But I hope more and more young people in particular will make the choice to think and act and create differently. At this stage, I always like to ask what would you would like people to think of you 100 years from now. But I, this time I would like to ask you a different question because uh, undoubtedly you are one of the great women of our times. There is there's definitely no doubt about that. I mean, you can look back and can see which impact you have had. So what I'm really interested in in your case, is I remember that when Doris Lessing won the Nobel Prize for Literature, that I read that she said that her work that she considers to be her, her most important work were her science fiction books. Uh, she would call it space fiction books. And I found it quite interesting because when they reprinted her work, when she won the Nobel Prize, they didn't reprint this, these science fiction books. 
which was a bit odd for me because I felt like she says that those are her most important books. So why don't they reprint those also? Yes. It's not either or. So so why I'm saying this is you've published a lot of books and uh, you've worked in, in different fields, basically, and connected them. Is there any work that you feel like is your most important work that possibly didn't get the attention that it should have? What do you consider to be, just very personally considered to be your most important contribution? You know, it's a difficult for me to choose. It's like choosing among children. Who do you love more? Um, I have to say that one of my favorite books that I wrote is called Sacred Pleasure. And it's about sexuality and spirituality. You would love it, by the way, if you have not read it yet, because it foreshadows so much. But probably, I mean, it's. I think that you have to take them all together because they're like a... Chalice and sacred pleasure really look at how in the world did we get to this mess and what are our possibilities. And then I started to write books looking at specific aspects of society, one on education, tomorrow's children. And then I wrote a book uh, that's sort of a, 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 a self-help, The Power of Partnership, about seven relationships and how they differ, depending on how much we relate to either end of the partnership domination scale. And then I wrote my economics book. The economics book is extraordinarily timely now, I would say, but so also is Chalice, so also is Sacred Pleasure, and so also is Nurturing Our Humanity because of the neuroscience that it brings to bear. And and so I, I find it very difficult to answer your question about what is the one book. I usually ask people to start with Chalice, Kelchenschwert, because, um, but the German edition doesn't have the uh, epilogue that I wrote on its 30th anniversary, bringing it up to date, bringing it up to the Trump years. So if you can get the English but get the 57th printing or the, get the new one instead of an old one, because then it'll, you'll have this. So Xerxes, I don't know what to say. I'm going to leave it to you to let, let me and your readers know which you think is the most important book. Thank you for giving this overview. It makes things much easier for especially people who haven't read anything yet. Yes, it was really a great honor for me to have you on my podcast. And it was a great pleasure to have this conversation with you. And thank you for doing what you, you're doing, what you have contributed. And I'm uh, positive that it will have a positive impact on us right now and future generations. Thank you. Thank much. you, Xerxes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for staying tuned for this edition of Challenging Paradigm X. If you like this episode with Rianne Eisler, feel free to share it with your community so Rianne's message gets spread even further. In the show notes you'll find the links to her institute, her books and her work in general. Please also hit subscribe and rate my podcast if you liked it. I'd be glad also if you write me a review. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. 
Next week, we are up again with another edition of Changing Paradigm X. Until then, I wish you a great week.